Thank you, thank you guys so much. Um, I'm excited to just be teaching, teaching God's word this morning. There's a couple of things I just wanted to, maybe some very, very initial thoughts too, just to share with you. And, but, um, you know, when Jesus was uh, commissioning his disciples, he, he, he told them that you're entering um, into another's harvest. And his point being that there was people that had come before um, the disciples in, the, in their sowing. And he said to them, you're entering into to their sowing and what you will reap um, is a harvest that, that, that they do credit for. And I just want to say to you guys that you guys are those sowers. Um, as I and Ruth and I, and us as a family step into this new role, um, it is on the backs of your faithfulness um, to the gospel, to one another as a church, um, the elders, the deacons, the ministry leads. Um, so, so many of you have been serving here so faithfully, and it's just our privilege um, in, to enter into that harvest, and I really do believe that there is going to be a harvest um, in the days to come. So just thank you for that. The other thing to share is my heart over the next season is just going to be listening. It's going to be learning. I'm sitting with you guys. It's been such a privilege just already to be sitting with so many of you, but into the next season, sitting, sitting listening, hearing your hearts, hearing your stories, hearing what God's doing in your lives. Um, I'm just excited and grateful to have the chance to do that. And the final thing that I'll say right now that my heart is leaning towards and I'm excited about is just really asking the question, who, who are we? Who are we? as a church, as Park Rogers Park, who are we as a church? What story are we telling? Why has God placed us here in this place, in this time, in this moment of time, had to be a church together? Um, and I'm excited for that conversation to see what God's going to do through us um, in the months and the years um, ahead. So thank you very much for um, welcoming us as a family. Um, I'm just excited to teach God's word with you this morning. So if you've got a Bible, please turn. So 1 Corinthians, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. Uh, let me get there. Some of you might know that Ruth and I, we started uh, dating when we were 16 years old, um, which feels incredibly young at this, at this point. Um, actually, sorry, we met when we were 16 years old, but then we waited about three months until we were 17 years old until... <laughs> We got together. In those three months, there was some scandalous teenage drama. Um, Ruth would gladly tell you more. Uh, she would not, actually. Uh, but we got, to, we got together when we were, we were 17. And now we are together 17 years later. So we literally did, we're 34, 17, 34. Four kids deep. Um, any teenagers here in the room? We got some teenagers. I know we got two. There we go. There we go. Guys, this could be a big year. Could be a big year for you. You just don't know. No? <laughs> But one of the uh, moments I remember early on um, in dating that, that, that kind of stuck in my mind um, back when I was completely ignorant to how to treat a girl or how to treat a girl well, I can remember the first time Ruth came to my home church as my girlfriend. As you can imagine, that was daunting for her. And as we got, we got, as we got to the door, there used to be deacons there on the door, um, similar to here, greeting folks. When you came in, they always shook your hand. It was quite formal. Um, and I remember thinking before going to the sanctuary, you know what, this is, this is kind of this is kind of scary. This is kind of walking into the, to the, the room, the sanctuary um, first is kind of scary. And, you know, I don't want Ruth to be nervous or scared and have all of those people kind of feel like she's maybe looking at her, all those other teenage girls in the youth group. And um, so I thought, <laughs> uh, I'll go first. You know, I'll, 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 I'll go in there. I'll go first. That's no big deal. And that's what we did. I walked in. Ruth walked in behind me. 
and we, we found our seats and sat down. And I thought that was no big deal. Now, I don't know where my dad was. Um, maybe he was in the balcony, maybe he was were, he were somewhere, and he was watching. When I got home, he said, Philip, and not Phil, Philip. And uh, he said, Philip, I, I, I seen you tonight, and listen to me, Ruth goes first. If you're going in some place, Ruth goes first. And I was kind of a little bit confused and kind of defensive and was like, yeah, I don't think so, Dad. And he said, look, if you go first and you get too far out in front of her, you have no idea if she's even still behind you. I was like, dang, he's giving marriage advice. And I'm like, he said, so she needs to go first and she determines her own pace. She can decide where she wants to sit. And if she needs you, she'll know where to find you behind her. Now, I had never thought so much before about entering a room, (laughs) so this was a lot for me to consider, and I'm still considering to what degree I agree, and I think sometimes it is scary to go first, and Ruth doesn't always want to go first, but still, 17 years later, in case my dad is somewhere and he's watching, I say, after you. (laughs) After you. And it's this phrase, after you, that we're going to be thinking about this morning. So here we go. Is it possible to concede our own centrality, and give it to another? Is it possible to yield first place and allow the primacy of another to go before us? Is it possible to still lead and serve and love and still find joy and peace while actively decentering ourselves? What does it mean in the life of the church to say collectively to one another, to each other, for myself to say to you, and for us to say to those that are not yet here, after you, after you, you first. Let's read our passage this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, and we're going to read from verse 19 down to verse 27, where it says this, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one, as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, and that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we are we and an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified." If you're comfortable doing so, would you raise your hands with me as we pray together, as we enter God's word. God, we come before you and we, God, we bring the week that we have had into this space. And God, we are thankful that you know the week we have had, God. And we come here and we come um, with weakness and we come with longing, God, and we are grateful that you meet with your people when we gather. That, God, you are distinctly present um, right now in your room, in this room through the power of your spirit and through the power of your word. So God, I pray that you would just speak into our hearts. Would you lift us up? Would you build us up as a people? Now, God, may we grow in Christ-likeness for the sake of our own joy and for the sake of others, I pray. In your name, amen. It's been three weeks or so uh, since we've been in 1 Corinthians. Let me give you a little bit 
of a build-up to what was in the background to today's passage. And if you're here for the first time, first of all, we are glad that you are here. I hope you feel seen this morning. I hope you feel welcomed this morning. But if you're wondering why are we in this particular passage that I, that I just read, what we do as a church is we study through each of the books of the Bible so that we don't skip anything. We believe God speaks through his word into our lives. And so on Sundays, we gather and we gather around his voice. It is he that's the reason that we are here. If you're asking how do you experience God and how do you feel his presence in your life, one of the key ways is through reading and meditating in the beauty and the truth of God's word. We believe God's word is alive. That's why we're here today, to, to, to recenter ourselves based on the week that we know we have had and based on the week we don't know we are about to have. There's intentionality for the sake of our souls and why the church gathers every week. We need each other. We need God's word. We need the sacraments. But we also preach through books of the Bible so that our messages, they build on one another. So a few weeks ago, Jamie taught in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, where the Apostle Paul was trying to get a church in Corinth that he was writing to to understand that yes, there are times we may have every right to make a particular decision in life, and yet that doesn't mean that we should. Paul lays out the principle of considering the feelings and the needs and the consequences due to the effects of our actions on those that are around us. There are times that we will do something in consideration of others, and there are times that we will refrain from doing something in consideration of others. This is what, it, what makes for healthy relationships, what makes for a healthy community and a healthy village. And this is a principle that came not from Paul's own genius, but came from the example of Jesus. Let me read from Philippians. It should come up on the screen. Actually, let's all read this together. Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 to 8, read with me. It says this, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count being equal with God as a thing to be grasped. But Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form. He humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Jesus had every right to grasp onto his position of eternal safety and security and comfort with God the Father in heaven, but Jesus humbled himself. He entered into human flesh and human mess, and he became a servant for us, for you. Jesus moved from a domain of comfort into the domain of engagement, and that's what we are here celebrating this morning, that the trajectory of our lives, the hope of our lives, our eternal future does not depend on our abilities, what we have done or what we have failed to do. Rather, our joy and our peace is found in Jesus, that he entered time and space, he took on human form, and he died for us on our behalf as our servant king to do what we could not do for ourselves. Amen? And then Paul writes, and so have this same servant-hearted, incarnational, relationally engaged mind that we see in Jesus this same mind of consideration for others among yourselves. We may have every right to be friends with whoever we think is cool or those that make us feel most comfortable, but what would it look like to lay our rights down in consideration of those that are being left out? We may have every right to speak about our own accomplishments with confidence, but what would it mean to lay our rights down in consideration of those that haven't had the opportunities that we have had? We may have every right to post whatever you want on social media, but what would it look like to lay down that right in considerations of the feelings and the struggles of others? Have we this same mind of consideration among ourselves for others that is ours in Christ? 
And then we look to chapter 9, verses 1 to 18, where Paul gave an example from his own life. Paul's life was causing some very serious confusion. If you remember, the church in Corinth thought very highly of themselves, and they, they did not like that the Apostle Paul was working this kind of blue-collar tent-maker job and that he was refusing to take financial support from the church. And we compared this a few weeks ago to Paul working this coming spring in the camping section of Dick's Sporting Goods. And the church leaders in Corinth, they weren't happy. They did not think Paul, was te- Paul taking shifts in, a, shifts in Aquila's workshop building tents was a highbrow enough position and place for an apostle that they were closely associated with. So much so that they started to doubt whether Paul was even an apostle. Paul was being misunderstood and he was being mistreated. And Paul was confused by the response. He, he asked them in 2 Corinthians in another letter, he says, did I commit a sin? Did, did I offend you? I know I'm different. I know I'm, I'm outside the box and what you think a religious leader should be, but do I really deserve to be treated like that? And so we asked, why didn't Paul just do what was expected of him? Why didn't he live a more prestigious lifestyle? Why did he need to be so complicated? And the answer is that in Corinth, Paul had intentionally chosen to lay down his right to being financially supported by the church because Paul knew his working a blue-collar job was a means of consideration towards others. Likely those around him feeling a degree of disillusionment brought on by the lifestyles of prestigious religious leaders in Corinth. So here it is. Paul was making his decisions in consideration of what he knew would make those around him more receptive and open to the gospel. Paul was making his decisions in consideration of what he knew would make those around him more receptive and open to the gospel. And that's where today's passage begins today with Paul offering further explanation as to what it means to live a life of Christ-like imitation in consideration of others. In verse 19, Paul says this, Though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant of all, that I might win more of them. And we begin by asking, what does Paul mean by saying, I am free? I am free from all. What is Paul free from? You know, something that we do but we need not do is we can quickly define people by one single characteristic or trait or aspect of their story. We very easily and we naturally extrapolate an entire narrative about someone based upon nothing more than one thing that we know about them. Words like refugee, immigrant, homeless, gay, minority, white, black, Latino are words that can easily feel like the be and end all of someone's story rather than a part of their story. But what's really interesting is, regardless of the degree to which we identify with particular labels or not, we all also know the flip side to this. That if one characteristic can so easily define what we think of others, then maybe there is a key characteristic that can easily define what others think of us. What if my story was extrapolated out in the eyes of others, not starting with the word homeless, but athlete? What if my story was extrapolated out in the eyes of others, not starting with the word immigrant, but influencer? What if my story was extrapolated out in the eyes of others with the word Harvard, Harvard or doctor or Tesla owner? I wouldn't mind a Tesla. Each of us can, can, can pick a word we desire as the signifier of our stories. Pastor, Irish, church planter, missionary. And yet what we seek to define us can become a prison to us. 
Because if who you are, if your identity and your worth is based on the fact that you're an athlete, what are you going to do when you lose your edge or your body begins to break down? If your sense of superiority is defined by the color of your skin, what are you going to do when your place of superiority within culture is being taken away from you and you realize your skin never made you superior in the first place? If who you are, if your identity is defined by your ability to live up to the expectations of your cultural heritage, what are you going to do when you start assimilating or losing your cultural distinctiveness and people think you are no longer black enough or Irish enough or Latino enough? If your core identity is defined by having it all, what is going to happen when true friendship demands authenticity and openness? I can tell you if we define ourselves by external words that signify our stories one day, sooner or later, there will be a realization. As your body breaks down and your athletic abilities begin to fade, a fear of mediocrity will become your prison. I have to win, I need to win, who else am I if I don't win? As you watch the shifts in demographics in your country as the US moves towards being a minority-majority country, you'll have to reckon with being imprisoned by defensiveness and fear. This is my country, this is my home, not yours. As you break the norms expected of your cultural heritage, you will suffer the chains of shame and being locked into a perpetual loss of belonging. I don't belong anywhere. I'm not Korean enough, Korean enough for them or white enough for you. But Paul says, He's free. Paul says he's free. Free from the fear of being average, free from losing his sense of belonging, free from the need to fake it. When Paul says I am free from all things, he is saying there are no words placed over me that can define me, that can imprison me, I'm free. I may be homeless, but homeless is not who I am. I may be gay, but gay is not who I am. I may be an athlete, but an athlete is not who I am. I may be Latino, but Latino is not who I am. And so for Paul, he may have been an apostle, a pastor, a Bible teacher, but that was not who he was. Remember, Paul is causing great confusion, and hear this, the reason he is causing confusion is because he is living free. He is bursting the box, breaking out of the limitations as to who it is perceived he should be as a prestigious apostle. He is happy working in the blue-collar tent factory. Why? Because he has found a way of escaping the chains of people's opinions and his own insecurities. He has escaped from what the dominant culture tells him defines him. And then we see in the second half of verse 19, Paul's freedom is not just so that he can have a sense of freedom for freedom's sake, or so he can have a deep sense of inner peace and self-acceptance, which we all do long for. Also, Paul's freedom, key to our passage today, is what allows him to be a great servant of all. Paul's freedom is what allows him to be a great servant of all. Let me explain. In the next Verses, verses 20 to 22, Paul refers to a number of different kinds of people that he's been interacting with. He references the Jews, he references those under the law, he references those outside the law, and he references the weak. And none of these people sound particularly familiar to us, other than maybe the Orthodox Jews that live in Rogers Park. 
And so to give some historical background, Paul is describing the kinds of people that he would have rubbed shoulders with 2,000 years ago, a different world than today, so people are described differently. And some of him very strictly held to Judaism, those under the law. And some of them followed a plethora of other pagan religions, those outside the law. And then there were the weak, those whose consciences bind them to living a very conscious, uh, conscious particular way of living. But the reason Paul intentionally references different kinds of people here is to highlight how he behaves differently in different social settings, depending on who he's with, depending who he is talking to. To the Jews, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, I became as one under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. And this is a, isn't a comprehensive list of all the kinds of people you can imagine that Paul interacted with. In the end of verse 22, he says, I have become all things to all people. And so we ask, well, what's Paul doing? <laughs> it's like, seriously, what does this mean to become as someone that you're not? <laughs> is that possible? Is Paul talking about a matter of like, like, like imitation? If Paul meets someone of another culture, does he start imitating them? Let me see how you sit. Oh, I'm going to wear that top next week. <laughs> Oh, can I try your accent? Does that make you feel comfortable? <laughs> Paul here is talking, is talking in practical terms. He's talking about actionable, actionable steps like eating food offered to him as a means of honoring those that have offered him the food. I think he's considering what he wears, whether what he's wearing is offensive or disrespectful or distracting. But I think we too quickly try and get practical, practical with these verses rather than consider Paul's heart. What these verses really are about is not imitation, but empathy. Empathy. Because write this down if you're taking notes. Empathy is the first step in decentering ourselves in consideration of others. Empathy is the first step in decentering ourselves in consideration of others. You know, empathy is a word that majorly gets underplayed in the life of the church. Empathy is to allow another's pain to run through your veins. Empathy is to enter in and imagine the story of another as your own. Empathy is to say, this, in this interaction, it isn't about me, it's about you. Empathy is about pausing to truly see someone. Empathy is the seed from which grows effective, incarnational, contextualized ministry. Empathy is to look through someone else's eyes until you see from their perspective. Empathy is how we say, after you, after you, you first. You set the pace, you choose our seats, and I'll follow right behind you. And Paul is very clear why he allows the stories and the cultural expressions and the feelings and the preferences of others to take primacy over his own. We already know, chapter 9, verse 12, because he'd rather endure anything than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Verse 23, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel. 
Remember, Paul was making his decisions in consideration of what he knew would make those around him more receptive and open to the gospel. And he knew if he was to allow interactions with those that don't know Jesus to be about them and not about him, he would be building a bridge to effectively communicate the gospel to them. Empathy is key to becoming all things to all people because empathy is the first act of standing in someone else's shoes. And so here are seven steps (laughs) to becoming a more empathetic person. Seven steps to say you first in your interactions with others, your colleagues, your neighbors, your friends, who you're sitting beside. Are you ready? Are you ready? There we go. Number one, be a self-studier. Be a self-studier. Before you think becoming all things to all people is about understanding others, it's first about understanding yourself. Those who know themselves have much greater ability to adapt themselves. Are you intimidating? It's okay if you are. Do you want to be? How are you perceived? What effect do you have in the room that you are entering into? Those are good things to know. Be a self-studier, number one. Number two, be curious. Church, find people wonderful. Find people wonderful. Be enthralled with the incredible wonder that are people. Want to know them. Be curious about what makes people the miracles that they are. Be curious. Number three, be a great listener. Be a great listener. Stop talking. That's it. (laughs) Number four, know that everyone has their challenges everyone especially those you think that don't believe that who you are with with always needs your kindness number one be a self-studier number two be curious number three be a great listener number four know that everyone has their challenges everyone number five if you want to grow in empathy experience a world outside of your own I said this a few weeks ago, the north side of Chicago has it all. We have an incredible wealth of different experiences at our fingertips to help us grow in empathy, help you grow in empathy. Go somewhere outside of your comfort zone. I know one of our elders' wives is in a Greek Orthodox church this morning just to do that. Go somewhere outside of your comfort zone, a mosque, a temple, a restaurant that you wouldn't usually go to, and sit in what makes you different, not what makes them different. Sit in what makes you weird. Be where you are not normal and ponder your abnormality. Number six. This is a good one. Avoid morphing another person's story into your experience of learning. Avoid morphing another person's story into your own experience of learning. You can be the most empathetic, curious, expanding your horizons through listening person and be kind. And if you're doing that, and you're not sincere in your consideration of the other, but you're doing it to be a better version of yourself, you'll smell of insincerity. An empathetic interaction is one that is not about you. It's the whole point. And finally, be yourself. (laughs) Be okay with your limitations, with your story and your personality. Be honest about the whole world of difference that you don't know, most of what you will never know. Humility is always endearing in a relationship. 
Empathy is key to becoming all things to all people because empathy, allowing the pain of another's to run through your veins is the first act of standing in someone else's shoes. All contextualization, all behavior modification comes first from empathy. But here's the thing for us this morning as a church. The same empathy and consideration that we endeavor to show out there should first be the culture of our interactions right in here. Asking ourselves on our way to small group, on our way to church, on our way to coffee, on, the way, on our way to other, each other's homes, is this an opportunity today to say, you know, tonight's about you. Today's about you. I'm going because someone there needs a word of encouragement. I'm going because someone needs a listening ear. I'm going because someone in a long time hasn't heard you first. Church, wouldn't it be incredible if we collided in compassion towards one another? If we were all stuck at the door saying you first, no you first, no you first. Church, what else could it mean to be a community aspiring to Christ-likeness? When Philippians 2 says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, it was the mind of Jesus to sit at tables and in homes and on mountains, on mountains which he made, and say, no, I want to hear about you. No, but I've been wondering how you're doing. I'm curious about you. You know, I know there's something you're struggling with. I'm here. I'm here to listen to you. Church, that is the empathetic mind of Christ. Seeking to know how he can serve us. You know, I think we often find having this mind hard is because we often myself included, aren't living in the freedom the love of Jesus offers us. We're still living for love rather than from love. When Jesus says it's all already yours. From verse 24 onwards, the apostle Paul, he takes kind of like a hard left. He seems to change the subject. He says, do you not know that in a race all the runners run? but only one receives the prize. And it's like, what? Where'd we go? Why are we here? Do I know that in a race all the runners run? That is like a riddle. <laughs> What's Paul talking about? Verse 24, 27. Paul equates the life of empathy of decentering ourselves for the sake of others to running a race. It's like running a race. He says, when running a race, you run to win. Yes. When running a race, you're, intention, you're intentional with your behavior. You, you discipline yourself. You discipline your habits and your training and in your eating, all just to win a mere medal, a trophy. And he's saying, if you take running a race this seriously to ensure you don't get disqualified by just, what, not being able to get to the end, I'm not sure, how much more seriously should we be taking our consideration of others if our inconsideration of others leaves us dangerously close to not being a Christian after all? I don't think he's saying to his readers in Corinth that they aren't Christians and I don't think he's saying that they're going to lose their salvation but he does use the word disqualified and this is a warning that is stark. 
And the warning is that the gospel, if truly received, should have an effect. It should form a kind of disciplined life. It's the discipline of applying the gospel to your life, not just on the day you first believed, but every day. And not only so that you will have a deep sense of inner peace and self-acceptance, but also so that you will be a great servant. Because otherwise, if you come to church imprisoned by your need for popularity, it is you who will be at the center of your interactions. If you come to church in chain to your culture, it is not others that you are making room for. If I come to church imprisoned by the need for recognition, the church will become a means of serving me and not you. But Jesus came to set us free. Jesus came to set us free. We're going to enter into the Lord's table now. And this is a discipline, exactly what Paul is talking about. It's a habit that Christ left us with to continually apply and reapply the gospel to our lives. There are words that people place over us to define us. Defining us by our mistakes or our failures or, our own pre- or their own prejudice. There are words that become the tellers of our stories when we know we each have so much more. And there are words we intentionally place over ourselves in order to be what we think we need to be, in order to be loved and accepted. And so now we bring ourselves, as a church, to the cross to receive from Jesus freedom. Freedom that we cannot get in this world. Jesus knew you before you were conceived. Jesus has sat with you and listened to your every thought. Jesus has been with you through every trial. Jesus knows your every sin and your every mistake, what you have done and what you have failed to do. Jesus knows you have been hurt. Jesus knows that you feel alone. He knows because on the cross, he stood in your shoes. And he allowed your pain to rush through his veins. He carried our grief and he bore our sorrows that by his stripes we may be healed. So that in some mysterious and wonderful way the chains of sin would be broken and we would be free. So that today and every day in his name we would find peace. In his name that we know we are seen. In his name we know we are loved. In his name we know we are recognized. And so in a moment if you have put your faith and your trust in Jesus, if you have said yes to him, and even if today is the first day you're going to say yes to Jesus, in a moment come up to the front, take the bread which symbolizes Christ's body given for you, dip it in the cup which symbolizes Christ's blood shed for your sins, and remember as you partake that Christ is here. And his servant heart that took him to the cross is still his heart for you today. And so as we come up the aisles today, somebody is going to have to go first. But somebody better be saying, after you. I pray that as a church we see those in front of us as those that we have been set free from using, who are now those that we are free to be serving. Is it possible to concede our own centrality and to give it to another? 
Is it possible to yield first place and allow the primacy of another to go before us? May we collectively, through the power of the Holy Spirit, have the mind of Christ and say to each other and to one another, after you, after you, you first. Please come up when you're ready.